This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. I'm Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Exec of the Foundation. Um, now, we're going to try to do something a bit unusual today, which is not to talk about lots about individual policies, although I don't want you to conclude from that we don't have lots of very strong views on lots of individual policies, but we want to instead ask a plausibility question, which is in theory everybody, every political party is in favour of, I hope, you can tell me later I'm wrong, I think they're all in favour of rising living standards and at least not rising inequality, and in some cases I would hope falling inequality. They're in favour of a fairer country but a richer country broadly. The, um, Britain's not done a very good job on that front, at least in the rising living standards for 15 years, and has had broadly the same level of inequality for 40 years, broadly from the late 80s uh, and early 90s. The increase that happens then, we've basically been stuck with that high level of inequality um, ever since. There's, big, there's ups and downs along those 40 years. Those of us who spend our lives working on that care a lot about those ups and downs, but big picture, the unequal Britain given to us by the late 80s and the early 90s is basically the one we are living with. And so we are as part of the Economy 2030 Inquiry, which is a joint project between the Resolution Foundation and the Centre for Economic Performance at the London School of Economics, funded by the Nuffield Foundation, who we should thank today, are pondering what does it take to do better than that? What is an economic strategy that could plausibly raise growth and bring down inequality look like? And this paper is a contribution, contribution to that argument. It's kind of the pivot in how we're thinking about this project between diagnosis of the problem and then what's the like, nature of a strategy that starts to make progress or you could plausibly believe would make progress on raising living standards and doing it in a way that doesn't lead to rising inequality. So that's a, not your standard think tank event, but you're not a standard audience, so I'm totally confident uh, you can do it. As I say, we're publishing a paper on that today, sharing the benefits, not the most imaginative title in the world, but you came for answers, not imagination. The, um, and it's going to take you through some thought experiments about what different approaches to an economic strategy, different objectives, different routes to that shared prosperity might deliver and might not deliver. Okay, so quite big picture stuff. There, um, uh, there's going to be lots of other papers in the Economy 2030 inquiry on the details of the policy rolling out. We talked about tax last week. We're going to be talking about um, income insurance in a few weeks' time, worker power, lots of other papers on specific areas of policy. Some really great work going on on how to help Manchester and Birmingham, two of our biggest but lower productivity cities, grow as part of this project. So they're all feeding in, but this is the strategy level for raising living standards. There, um, so. That's the plan. One of the authors of the paper, Mike Brewer, who's the chief economist and deputy chief exec here at the foundation, is going to give you a summary of the paper, first of all, the, um, and talk you through some moderately complicated modelling. But again, total faith in you all to follow all of it and in him to explain it clearly. The, um, and then we've got a great panel. So you're going to hear from Dr. Tanya Burkhart, who's the associate director of CASE, the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion at LSE, and one of the key contributors to the Economy 2030 inquiry. I should say thank you to her for some contributing, particularly to some of the work up in Manchester and Birmingham that's been going on in recent weekends as well. The, um, and then you're going to hear from Martin Sambu, who's the European economics commentator at the Financial Times, and has been writing about these issues and encouraging countries to think about their policy in an economic strategy frame for some time. So I'm sure he will uh, join in with this. That's the plan. And then you can all engage on Slido. It's hashtag shared prosperity, or you can ask questions in the room using a microphone. Um, and that's about it. And we're going to wrap up for 10.45. So that's an hour and 10 minutes to solve the UK's economic strategy. Everyone ready?
Good. Go, Mike. <laughs> well, fortunately, we had a head start, didn't we? So some, some of us did. <laughs> um, so I think I'm going to do this. Yes, uh, so thank you very much. Uh, clicky, 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 clicky. Ooh, we might need to move on over there, Tony. There you go. Is it not working? We're, All right. we're, we're back to the pandemic. I can do that. I can do this. I can do my crispity. Okay. Even more faith in you to manage that. Thank you. So everyone wants growth, at least for some difference of everybody. Uh, here is Rishi Sunak last year saying that the key policy challenge was to was a return to growth. Keir Starmer wants three things, but they're all growth. And the <laughs> Treasury last autumn said that, uh, that, that, that our policy priority must be to, to unleash growth. And uh, on the next slide, you can see why they are right to all say this. Uh, the red line shows um, uh, GDP, GDP per capita. Um, and we've looked over, looking over the 10 years previous to that date. The key point is that in the 10 years leading up to 2005, we saw GDP, uh, we saw a 10 year rate of growth of GDP per capita of 30%. Uh, in the 10 years up to 2020, we saw a 10 year growth rate of just 8% in GDP per capita. And this chart also reminds us why that's important. We need growth because growth is ultimately what determines wages and living standards. And you can see from the blue line, which is tracking the red line very closely over this long period of time, and in particular, you probably all know that over the, over the, the last the decade leading up to the pandemic, we saw a really dismal uh, growth rate in average earnings of just 4% over the previous, previous decade. So the Treasury were right to say that we need growth because growth is the only way to raise living standards and pay, pay for public services. Um, on the next chart, you can see the international experience looking over a 25-year uh, period. Uh, we are showing how this chart shows how improvements in productivity growth are, are linked to, are related to improvements in average wages. Now, of course, in the short run, there are various factors which mean that uh, improvements in productivity don't necessarily turn up in the pay packets of your typical worker. Um, three of the things we talk about in the report, one might be uh, an increase in earnings inequality. So there are periods of time where the gains from growth might be captured by those at the top of the distribution rather than typical workers. Um, there might be times when the gains from growth turn up not in workers' pay packets, but in their, their future pensions or in contributions made to government. And there are times when the terms of trade works against workers. So when import prices rise, as they're doing right now, workers might find that they're not getting as much out of their pay packets as they're used to. So all of these three things can affect this relationship between productivity growth uh, and, and typical earnings. But in the, in the medium to long run, um, they can't destroy that relationship altogether. So ultimately, productivity growth is what drives wage growth. And so it is right that all uh, politicians seem to be striving to get more of it. So as Torsten said, the question we pose in this paper, though, is, 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 really, is, is productivity growth enough uh, to achieve uh, not just growth, but shared growth? And if it isn't, then what might a plausible strategy look like to get growth without worsening inequality in the UK? Um, and if we could show the first of the... Uh, it's not tricky modelling at all. It's very simple modelling. Show the first chart of the modelling. So in, in this... In this, uh, in this modelling, we, we undertook a thought experiment. Um, let's pretend we get back to normal economic times. That would be nice, wouldn't it? And let's say we had a decade of steady growth at the level that the OBR thinks the UK can currently perform at. Um, and, that's a, and that would imply a, a, each year real earnings going up by about 1.5% a year. Over a 10-year period, that would be a 16% rise in real earnings. Um, 
what we asked in, 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 in this modeling exercise was how, how, would that, how would those gains be distributed across the working age population uh, between richer and poorer households if nothing else changed, if the government sort of sat back, let the economy grow for 10 years, leave policies kind of motoring along as they are now, where would you end up? This is the answer. Um, typical in incomes would go up by about 12%. Higher income households would see gains of 14%. Lower income households would see much smaller gains of just 2%. Uh, so why is that? Well, there are two broad reasons why that's the case. On the uh, next slide, you can see that one reason is that uh, for many households, earnings from the labour market are not the most important source of income. So if we just sit back and let the labour market drive growth, some people, some people will find that their other sources of income are falling behind. And in particular, there are 11 million people who live in working age households who get less than half their income from the labour market. About six million of these are in households that don't work at all, where no one works at all. About five million are in households which, where somebody is in work, but where the benefit system is providing more than half of their income because they're getting help with extra cost benefits for children or for, or for housing costs. And it's that fact combined with the next slide, um, our approach, our current approach to working age social security, which is behind the, um, the, 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 the depressing chart I showed you a couple of slides ago. So our approach to working age social security is to increase benefits each year in line with inflation. Usually we do that. Right now, in the last couple of years, we've been having debates about whether we should even do that. And obviously in the 2010s, we had some austerity, which meant we didn't do that either. But in the long run, we do tend to increase benefits in line with inflation for the working age. And, uh, but that means they're going to fall ever further behind um, average earnings in periods where earnings grow. And you can see that on this chart uh, over the, for, the, for the previous 20 years. Um, of course, there are some hiccups in the, in the last few years because of what happened to average earnings during the pandemic. But if we carried on with this policy, you can see the value of uh, universal credit and child benefit just declining as a fraction of average earnings. For comparison, I've also put the basic state pension on there. The basic state pension, as you know, is increased by the triple lock, which in the long run means it's going up faster than average earnings because of that ratchet effect. In those years when average earnings is low, it gets boosted instead by inflation or 2.5%, and that never gets clawed back. And we'll come back to that uh, later. So 11 million people living in households that don't get all their income from the labour market. And if we uprate some of their income, the rest of their income, only in line with inflation, that inevitably means that some households are going to get left behind when we, if we return to, uh, to, to, to economic growth. So how can we, what can we do about that? What should our strategy be to deal with that? Um, and in very broad, very broad terms, we can think of strategies as being about pre-distribution and redistribution, if you'll excuse the jargon. Pre-distribution is, is the name given to a set of policies which are about sharing the rewards from the labour market more widely. And redistribution is the good old tax and benefit system. And what we argue in the paper is that any policy to achieve shared growth has to embrace both of those things, as well as productivity growth. So we need productivity growth, we need pre-distribution, and we need redistribution. On the next chart, we show what, you might, what we might plausibly expect from a pre-distribution strategy. Now, this is not the paper where we set out in detail all the policies in a pre-distribution strategy, but at its core, we'll need to be higher employment and um, measures to uh, change the distribution of earnings to favour low-wage and low-earnings people. So and in this chart, we've done some modelling where we've imagined two things happen. The first one is a rise in the employment rate of three percentage points, which is broadly what we achieved over the 2010s. 
And the second one is a reduction in earnings inequality achieved mostly by boosting low wage, boosting the wages of the low paid. And this might be done through uh, more action on the national living wage. Um, it might be done by increasing the hours worked by low earners. It might be done through a, a good job strategy, which actually makes people want to work in uh, more hours in low, in low paid work. For now, we're not, we, for now, we're being agnostic about how you achieve it. We're just thinking about what, what it might plausibly achieve. And so this chart, I think, it re represents a plausible best-case scenario, if I can reuse some of the words from the pandemic. In the light blue lines, we've, we've shown what would happen if we did get another 3% of the workforce in, in, into work. And you can see from the, the income gains there are looking a little bit more like uh, shared growth. And the dark blue lines show what happened if we also make progress on, um, on, on low earnings. So more like shared growth, but still not completely shared growth. Still, still a tendency for middle and high earners to be gaining more, more than low earners. And that's really because there are limits to pre-distribution. We cannot expect every working age adult to be in work full time. And there will always be some working age households that receive some of their income in benefits, primarily because of the extra cost benefits we pay to parents, those with disabilities, and people who are renting. And we have to think about our strategy towards those, that source of income if we're ever going to achieve a truly shared growth. So here it's informative to think about the experience of pensioners in the 1980s and 1990s, which is shown on the next slide. Um, in the 1980s, that's when Britain's economy went boom, and so did the income distribution. Um, earnings grew really strongly in the 1980s. And at the start of the 1980s, many, most pensioners were receiving sources of income that were linked only to inflation. So we increased their benefits in line with inflation, and many were receiving annuities which were linked to inflation only. So when the economy went boom in the 1980s, pensioners just got left behind, particularly low-income pensioners. And that's what's shown on this chart, which shows relative poverty rates. And then about a five-year period, the proportion of pensioners in relative poverty went from 14% to 41%. They weren't getting poorer in absolute terms, they were just being completely left behind as the rest of the economy soared ahead. Now in the 1990s, we sort of saw that might be that, the 1990s had a recession, which, which you know, helped with pensioner poverty, but didn't really help with living standards. But then as we came out of that and we saw that growth was back, we realised that this is going to happen again unless, unless we did something about it. And so in the late 1990s, um, governments first of all decided to link means-tested benefits of pensioners to earnings, and then later on in the 2000s to link the basic state pension to earnings. And the explicit justification was to allow older people to share in the rising prosperity that the UK, the UK's rising prosperity. And, uh, and when we think that that, that decision in, in the late 1990s to link benefits to earnings is responsible for about a seven percentage point fall in pensioner poverty rate. You can see the big fall in pensioner poverty rate since, since uh, the, you know, the 1990s. We think about seven percentage points of that came from that one decision to link benefits to earnings. So we've just got to apply the same logic to working age to working age households because the same logic does apply. If we don't index their benefits in line with earnings, then they will, then, then there will be a sizable fraction who also get left behind when we return to, uh, to, to, to economic growth. Now this would be a big change, and many people will say that it's not it's not affordable. Um, and we show that on the on the next slide, um, which which shows some figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility. On the left-hand side, we are showing their forecasts for spending on working age benefits as a share of GDP. And on the right-hand side, we're showing their forecasts for um, spending on the over 65s. And the demographic makeup of the UK means that all the pressure on social security spending in the future is coming from the spending on, the, on older people, 
there are more of them, and we're increasing the basic state pension faster than earnings, and that means that their spending, spending on, on, the, on that group is forecast to rise. Spending on working age households is actually forecast to fall even if we were to index working age benefits to earnings, which is shown by the diamonds. Um, now, of course, there is a cost to increasing benefits in line with earnings compared to letting them wither away by indexing them to prices. And in 2041, we think that cost is about 1% of GDP. But if you go back to the triple lock, what we, what we, what we, ideally, what we, what we would ideally like to see is benefits for pensioners and for working age in, increased, indexed in the same way. Both of them, we think, should be indexed just to earnings. None of this triple lock malarkey that's ratcheting up but just a, a long-run uh, link to, 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 to earnings. And if we did that, we'd be able to save about half percent of GDP on benefits for pensioners. It's about half the cost of linking working age benefits to pensioners can be saved by removing the triple lock. So where would that take us? Uh, we see that on, on the final slide. Um, so here, again, the, the, so the yellow lines is what we had before. That's, that's return to growth, but no, no other policy change. The dark blue lines are our plausible best case of, what, of, a, of a pre-distribution strategy. But if we add on top of that a commitment to earnings index, uh, all benefits for working age households, and also to increase housing support in line with um, housing costs, that's a really key bit as well, as we saw from the IFS work last week. Um, then you can see a pattern of income changes that is well, it's not, it's not just shared growth, it might even reduce uh, income inequality if we did all those three things together. Um, so my, my final slide to conclude with, we, we definitely need productivity growth, that is the, very, very much the starting point, but it's not going to be sufficient to see, to see the UK return to shared growth. We will need to embrace both pre-distribution and redistribution and not pit them together. Um, the good news, so that's, that's a challenging agenda, um, and it might be some, some, some radical thoughts there. The good news, of course, is the UK has done all of those three things, um, but just now it just needs to try and, try and do them all, all at the same time, and, and as part of a concerted long-term strategy. Great. Thank you very much, Mike. So the headline at the end there is, it is hard, but it's, it is plausible. The, um, and, but to be, to, for it to be plausible, you have to be doing all three at once, and we're going to come back to that in a bit. But first, Tanya. Do you want me to stay here? Or? You can stay here, Tanya. Okay, thank you very much, and thank you, Mike, and thanks for the excellent paper. I think there's a, a great deal to, to welcome uh, in the analysis. Uh, the observation that widening inequality is not an inevitable consequence of growth, something that I think uh, some more fatalistic analysis has sometimes, sometimes missed. Uh, the uh, injunction that both pre-distribution and redistribution are required, I think, is also absolutely spot on. Uh, the observation that it's just not sustainable to keep benefit levels at the, for working age people at the level they are and with the uprating system that we have at present. And, and lest we forget, the current rate of universal credit for single people under 65 is just £67.46 per week. So that's the kind of baseline that we're coming from. Clearly, if you envisage a future uh, in which that is uprated at best in line with prices, whilst earnings growth uh, increases, uh, one can see that that's a, a recipe for increasing destitution, never mind just poverty. 
Uh, and the fourth thing that I really particularly welcome in this report, which you only actually touched on in the presentation, but I've had the uh, advantage of being able to read the full report, is how central housing costs are to this story and the importance of uh, not just uh, brushing that under the carpet because it's always really difficult. So housing costs is always an awkward part of thinking about uh, incomes policy, thinking about social security. So I think putting that uh, absolutely centrally here in the analysis in the report and thinking about uh, how to link help for housing costs, especially given pressures on increasing housing prices coming through uh, the economic growth, as you, as you spell out in the paper, is, is really, really uh, important and welcome. So I had just um, three observations, which are really by way of sort of extensions or um, uh, rather than uh, criticisms of the, of the paper. Um, the first is in terms of the, the framing. So your argument, as I, as I read it, is that uh, growth is essential for improving living standards. Unfortunately, growth may, left to its own devices, so to speak, uh, increase inequality or put upwards pressure on inequality. So what can we do to, to mitigate that? How can we address uh, the inequality that is thereby generated? <clears throat> but of course, an alternative frame, an alternative way of looking at that is that actually inequality exerts a huge drag on productivity. And so one can sort of run the argument the other way and say that we need to fix inequality if we're to give ourselves the best chance of uh, promoting productivity growth. And that, of course, has been observed a long time ago. So historically, if we look back to the disastrous Boer War at the beginning of the 20th century that Britain was involved in, uh, it was discovered that Britain couldn't actually prosecute its uh, intentions uh, through the uh, army that it recruited from the working class because of malnourishment, because of ill health. And it was partly as a result of discovering that its workforce, in this case an army, uh, couldn't be productive in the form of uh, prosecuting this war, uh, that we saw the very first move towards, for example, the introduction of free school meals, uh, 1906, uh, and some very basic health insurance, 1911. So that understanding that actually you need to address inequality in order to enable people to be productive, uh, I think has a, has a long and important history. And there are other ways, apart from just health, in which inequality impedes uh, productivity growth. It also uh, can result in underinvestment in education and barriers to people making use of uh, education that's available to them, mismatches between skills and the productive activities that people uh, are able to engage in, uh, destruction of assets uh, or inability to access capital, um, and if we look across the channel right now, it can also produce social unrest and uh, political instability. And I think plausibly one of the causes of the riots in France at the moment is indeed uh, inequality. So that is all extremely damaging uh, to uh, chances for, for economic growth as well. So the second observation I wanted to make was about uh, the uh, dynamics of all of this. So um, in the paper and, and presentation, we heard that there were uh, large parts of society who don't receive uh, the majority of their income from the labour market, and that is absolutely correct. And I particularly liked the way in the paper that there was an emphasis on proportions of people's income that they receive from the labour market and from the benefit system, uh, rather than seeing it in, in more stark in and out kind of terms. But if we apply a dynamic lens to that, we can see that it isn't just a fixed set of people the them 
uh, as opposed to the us, that are uh, out of work or receiving only a small portion of their total income from the labour market. It's a changing population of people and it's actually about different uh, phases of people's lives. So when people have young children, when both their own uh, uh, availability to participate in the labour market is reduced and their costs are higher, uh, is uh, one period of life when people are more likely to need to draw more on social security. Similarly, uh, in terms of retirement or in terms of uh, ill health, uh, reducing the ability of people to engage in the labour market. And again, this has got a very long history, this observation. So you can go back to Seapoam Roundtree writing about uh, the working class in York uh, in, again, 1901, uh, where he observed this life cycle of poverty and the periods when people uh, had highest costs and lowest incomes uh, and vice versa. And th that has been more recently, of course, um, brought to the fore in John Hill's analysis in Good Times, Bad Times, Welfare Myth of, of Them and Us. So I think this is really important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, because it underlines the way in which what we sometimes loosely refer to as the benefit system, but which is properly called social security, is indeed about security for all of us as we pass through our lives and go through periods which in some cases are predictable periods, in some cases are unpredictable periods when we need to draw more uh, from social security and other periods where we're paying in more uh, to the system. And if we think about it in that terms, if we think about the function of social security as being about insurance, uh, being about consumption smoothing over the life cycle, we can uh, see again another reason why it's so important that the levels of benefit are kept in touch with average earnings and not just with prices. Because it doesn't act as an effective insurance. It doesn't act as effective uh, smoothing over the life cycle uh, if the too big a gap opens up between average earnings and benefit levels. It's also, of course, crucial, this dynamic perspective in political terms. So understanding that when we're talking about redistribution, we're largely talking about redistribution from ourselves to ourselves at a different point in our lives and not uh, from uh, us to them. My final observation, and I'm not sure where this sits in the uh, kind of pre-distribution, redistribution spectrum, is about the importance of services to people's living standards alongside their incomes. So how far a given income stretches depends very much on what you're having to uh, pay out uh, from that income. Uh, now, we're used to thinking in this country that uh, healthcare is free uh, and education and uh, social care if you need it. Uh, but increasingly, we've seen those things come under strain. So uh, desperate schools, I had a text only this morning from my uh, daughter's school appealing for donations from parents because uh, they're so strapped for cash uh, that they can't even cover the essentials. Social care, as we know, um, has uh, to some extent ceased to function, at least in the way of uh, providing help uh, where, it's, where it's needed. Um, housing's uh, mentioned in the report as another very important part of this kind of package of services and, and what's uh, uh, provided for people at a reduced uh, below market cost. Uh, but we should also think about other services, sometimes badged as universal basic services by people like Ian Goff and, and others. 
Uh, childcare, it seems to me, needs to be part of that picture. Transport, uh, particularly if we're thinking about this um, growth model led by cities, uh, thinking about tra transport infrastructure and, and accessibility and uh, cost of transport. Communications in this digital age, uh, ensuring that uh, those services, digital services, are effectively available to people at a reasonable cost. And utilities, which we've spent a lot of time thinking and talking about, um, particularly in the recent period. Lots of levers uh, to address those services. There's price regulation of different kinds. Um, there's service guarantees, universal service guarantees at various uh, models. There's, of course, possibility of public ownership and uh, different forms of democratic accountability of uh, service providers. So there's lots that can be done on that score, which helps those incomes at whatever level they're set and through whatever combination of earnings and benefits um, to actually support people's uh, living standards effectively. Thanks That's very much. great, Tanya. There was loads in there. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. Right, we're going to hopefully try to come back to some of those issues because there was so much to go. Martin. Thank you very much. Um, well, thanks, Mike and, and Tanya, for introduction and, and discussion, and thanks, Torsten, and everyone for having me. Um, I, I was saying to the others before we started that uh, there's kind of a boring word for, for what you've done, which is sort of arithmetical, arith arithmetical scenario planning. Uh, I say it's a boring word, but arithmetical scenario planning is actually fantastically useful tremendously important so I don't you know that's more like, that's more like it there, there's there, there's nothing to be ashamed of in using that term uh, my term not their term why is it fantastically useful uh, well I, as I see it what you do is to hold up a, a lens through which we can examine policy proposals and, and policy programs rather and tell political leaders and politicians well if you achieve everything you say you'll achieve what do you actually get and what you're showing, I think, is that, well, it may not be all that you're promising. So, so there's a, a kind of quiet radicalism here that, that I think is really important to, to see. Uh, you know, this very scientific, if you like, exercise is politically radical. And I think that's a very good thing. And that's how we should use this sort of work, your work and this type of methodology in general. Um, so I... You know, I want to kind of make two, two big points. Uh, the first is, I want more. So I'll talk a little bit about what, what more I'd like to see, what more I'd like to know, both from what you've done and what I'd like you to do in a, in a new iteration if you were going to do one or, or others. Um, but then, of course, there are limitations to how much that sort of exercise can tell you. So I want to reflect a little bit on that. Um, some of the things we learned from this, um, the importance, of course, of productivity growth. Uh, and let, let me start by pointing out that it's just really, really important to always say productivity growth or per capita growth. Even you, Mike, sometimes slipped into saying just growth. But of course, that, that first sort of uh, pessimistic chart you showed about how, well, if you get productivity growth, you still get more inequality because it benefits the people on the top more than the people at the bottom. Um, if you just had growth, as in growth of GDP, but not growth of GDP per capita, it would be even worse. And unfortunately, in the political debate and among politicians, uh, I mean, that's often at best conflated. Uh, and at worst, they only think about GDP growth, not GDP per capita growth. So that last decade is a, is a case in point. Between 2010 and 2016, Britain had pretty decent GDP growth compared to peer countries. 
low, yeah, low threshold, I know. Um, but as we saw, very poor GDP per capita, productivity growth and, and income and wage growth, right? Um, so, so that's one thing to really keep in mind all the time, that this should be used to hammer, hammer through the point that it's productivity growth, per capita growth we need. Uh, so that links to one of the things I would like to see in a sort of Mark II, if you were going to do one uh, of this. What about immigration? Right? Uh, the composition of the workforce and of the sort of jobs we have matter a lot for these, these outcomes. And it's mattered a lot in the recent history of UK growth and and per capita growth and the distribution of that growth. So there's a difference politically between, you know, are we, are we getting, are we making existing people falling, fall more behind the people at the top? Are we getting in a lot of new people who come in at the bottom? Those are different political realities and we might as well grapple with that. Um, another very useful thing this exercise does, I mean, I really like this stuff on, on housing. It's, it's, again, extremely important. Traumatic, exactly. It's it's a it you know it's a manifestation of the road to hell paved with good intentions phenomenon, right? You you can get what maybe you'll get what you are aiming for, and it turns out you have some really bad outcomes as a result of that. In this case, higher house prices or higher rents. Um, again, I think things are even worse than what you uh, what you display. <laughs> Sorry, it's kind of pessimistic in the morning, um, because uh, Mike's exercise looks at incomes from earnings and benefits not from capital income. Right? And of course, if you have higher, it, it's kind of mentioned in the paper, in a Mark II, I would want it even more emphasized. Um, if productivity growth and therefore wage growth drives up house prices, then a lot of that productivity growth is captured in literal rent uh, or economic rent, you know, higher uh, capital gains to existing homeowners, uh, higher profits for house builders, should you explain why that's true? Because not everyone will be spending their... You should all be reading books about housing economics, but should you explain why that happens? Because we didn't cover that much in the presentation. So you have people, really yeah, you, have, you, have a, you, have a, you have a fixed amount of houses and more people having more money in their hands to try to spend on decent housing. They bid the price up. It's the people who own the existing houses or can build new ones who capture that gain. And, and that's the flip side of, of what you do show, which is that after housing costs, the people at the bottom are no better off or worse off. But that goes somewhere, right? So we should really, in a kind of comprehensive sense, add that to the top, yeah. the, the top, of, top of the distribution bars. So, so this is another reason why things are even worse <laughs> than what you saw. Um, but again, there's another variant of this I would love to see explored by you or, or others, uh, and this leads to another big kind of political policy theme, regional differences. So house mm -hmm. prices are very different in different parts of the countries, country, partly because of income differences, partly because of productivity differences, also partly because of the situation, the kind of conditions for house building, I think. So a regional approach may show you that there would be less rent extraction if wages went up in a poorer part of the country, perhaps, I don't know. Um, and, that, and the economics of that is because of those areas, housing supply is more likely to be able to respond exactly. to, to the rise in Exactly. You know, yeah. Land conditions may be different. Regulations could be made different. Uh, London is a very dense and crowded place. Um, it may be what? easier in other parts. I've never noticed. Never noticed. <laughs> um, so, so that, and that, of course, links to, in terms of practical political debate, links to the levelling up agenda. So you have things to say about that, and I would yeah. love to hear more about that. That's great. Um, 
Okay, I'm running out of time, so I will, I will talk a little bit about uh, what this sort of exercise can't tell us, but that we also need to know. Um, you, you, you're very, you know, you're honest in the exercise about how we're not, we're not going to say anything about how you could get, for example, higher employment. Um, and that's fair enough. That's not what this sort of methodology is about. But when we come up, you know, when, when you do put that, that lens to the political agendas and manifestos we see out there, then that answer is very quickly going to come back, right, and say, well, but maybe we can't have everything you want or everything you model. So one, one simple example of that would be people saying, well, we got a lot of employment growth in the last decade, but that was because we really squeezed uh, in-work benefits. People had no, you know, they would starve or work, so all the you know, mm -hmm. lazy bums got, got to work, right? That's a rhetoric you will be up against with this sort of argument. Yep. So, so in a sense, you can't stop here. I mean, this paper can stop here, but the next part of the conversation has to be, well, how do you get these things? And Torsten will no doubt uh, regale us in the break about all the stuff that you've done as part of the 2030 inquiry about policies to get us there. But, you know, the, these things have to, have to, in the end, come together, right? So there is the scenario analysis, but you do need the how to get there part as well. Um, you know, what could be, let me just do the last minute speculating about the sort of things that could achieve this. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of promise in thinking that the pre-distribution agenda can also lead to productivity growth. And this is, I've written about this before, some of you may have read, that I think the Scandinavian experience shows that when you force up wages at the bottom through, you know, in Scandinavian cases, through strong unions, but whatever pre-distribution policy you have, uh, if you kill off a business model that relies on very cheap and very unproductive labor, then you will force businesses to invest, to make, productive, to make labor more productive, and therefore to be able to pay higher wages. Uh, if they also invest more and labor is therefore more productive, they may also end up hiring more. I mean, that is a good account of why uh, the Scandies have high productivity and high employment and lower pre-distributive inequality. Um, I, one thing I'd like to, to, to also see a bit more of, um, and I don't know if you do this actually, it wasn't quite clear to me from the paper. So, so when you model, you look at um, the uprating of the benefit, uh, the benefit rates. I don't know if you also looked at the effect of the withdrawal of benefits as incomes increase. So take the universal credit taper, for example. But we do know that the effective tax rate for lower income people, the people who are sort of trying to get off benefits, is still in what seventy percent range here, maybe higher in some situations. Uh, those are very, very punitive tax rates. You know, there'd be an outcry if we try to impose seventy-three percent tax rates on high earners. Um, I'd just like to know in the mechanics of your modeling. It's in there. It's, it, it's, it's in, in there. there. Good. Yeah. Uh, finally, one one limitation of this approach um, is you know you confine yourself to looking at these variables in your scenario: the predistribution productivity growth and, and benefits. Uh, and you conclude that, well, we have to work on the benefits issue too. It's not completely true, right? If you look at housing, I mean, the other policy is to build more houses, right? So if you could keep housing costs down by building more, by removing all these constraints, then you wouldn't have that last bad bit of your model. Uh, now, how do you get there? Very hard, obviously. But in terms of getting to practical policy, either responses to you or criticism, uh, or where you want to take this further, I think you want to see, well, 
okay, other things being equal, you need to operate benefits by earnings or housing benefits specifically by earnings or maybe more. Uh, that's a little bit of a, of a treadmill, right? You, you end up driving house prices up that way. Well, what if you could have policies on the supply side? And I think there's a broader lesson here, uh, which is to think about the distributive and pre-distributive effects of public goods provision and other public policies. Uh, so I will end there. Uh, that's the sort of very exciting area that this opens up. So tremendous insights, uh, very useful, and as I said, quietly radical. But the vista it opens up kind of lends itself to even much more work. Very good. Looking forward to more work. Thank you very much, Martin. The, um, that's a really good summary of, um, I like quietly radical as well. Like shouty radical, and doesn't get you very far. Um, so let's, um, let's dig into a bit. We've got loads of good questions coming in as well. And if you want to ask questions in the room, put your hand up, and everyone else can go on to Slido and put in hashtag shared prosperity. So let's, let's take this into some chunks, because this is not all totally straightforward, and I think we should unpack them. So there's at least four arguments going on. Okay, so let's do first of all the interaction between inequality and growth, which if you went back 10 years was a large part of kind of the debate, the, um, and has kind of gone away as we've had zero growth, for, uh, zero productivity growth for um, a long time. But let's come back to that, okay? And we can talk about how we've done that in the modeling, and then what do we actually conclude for an economic strategy about that? Martin's made the case that it should be a central component of the strategy, so the interaction. Then there's the, I, I'm not, I don't want to say it's increasingly popular, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely around quite a lot, which is, we don't want this growth anyway, right? And it's got a, that's got a number of different, different components. Some people don't want the growth because um, they, don't think it, they don't think it will feed through into wages at all. Only the rich will benefit from growth, so don't have the growth. Definitely people think that. Um, another load of people think it might feed through to wages, but it will destroy the planet. And so I don't want it anyway, right? So those are the two biggest degrowth arguments. There are others, right? But there's the like, do we want growth in the first place um, argument. Then there's, and you see that one mainly on the left, but it isn't just on the left. The, um, in practice, some people voting green or con the conservative green swing voters in Suffolk, right? Anyone from Suffolk in the room? There, on them. <laughs> right, so if you were paying attention to Suffolk politics, everyone else should have been, very exciting Suffolk. Then uh, you'll, be, you'll be seeing a Tory versus green marginal thing breaking out. Who is the t marginal voter in a Tory versus Green? So a, a degrowther, a like 70-year-old degrowther, basically. Yeah, mm. doesn't want anything built in Suffolk, isn't fussed about growth, doesn't affect their incomes at all. Like that's, that's how you end up with places where that politics, which was impossible, I'm slightly caricaturing, sorry to be caricaturing Suffolk, but you know, Suffolk's been caricaturing everyone else for years, so it can take it. Um, the, but that politics goes there, but mainly it's on the left, but you do get versions of it on the right as well. Um, then there's a big row, which you definitely see on the left and the right, which is pre-distribution versus redistribution, right? So you see this in people, norm, often it comes as a critique of the last Labour government, for example, which is, um, uh, we can come back to whether it's fair or not, Tanya's got lots of views on this, um, but um, you, don't, you don't keep giving people money when they're working from the state. They, um, uh, you're subsidising, the left version of this is you're subsidising employers, instead kind of be mean to the employers, regulate the labour market, get better wages, you then you won't need in work benefits. Yeah. The right version of it is um, uh, I'm not in favour of any of this benefit redistribution stuff. And if we just get everyone into work, um, then that will get down inequality in a more sustainable way. Right. Now, concrete example of that, George Osborne, straight off the 2015 election, huge cuts to benefits, 
at the same time as introducing a higher minimum wage and explicitly says, I'm doing the higher minimum wage and cutting benefits and they're the part of the same story, right? Because I'm cutting, because I'm raising the minimum wage, I can cut benefits and people won't be loads poorer, right? He then you turned on it because it doesn't work, but we'll come back to that. But that's the right version of it. The left version of it is, is stop subsidising employers with the redistribution, whack up people's wages, unions, whatever else, right? Those are both very common. The, um, um, and the rhetoric of the left and the right on it is basically identical. The, um, as, and as our view is, obviously, they're both wrong, but we can come back to that. There's a row between predistribution versus redistribution. The, um, there used to be people that said it was all about redistribution. They don't exist in British politics anymore. They do exist in academia less fussed about the pre-distribution because it's hard work, big institutional changes, whereas you can just pull a lever in DWP to do the redistribution. So people write about just redistribution a lot, but they don't exist in British politics really they, um, uh, anymore. So that's a row. Then there's another row, which is none of this can actually happen. Right? It's all impossible. Let's just carry on with our stagnation because that's what's going to happen. Uh, and we'll get a bit of growth and then inequality will go up and that's just what happens all the time. So like, that's the nihilist argument against all this stuff. So that's to give us a framing, right? First of all, do the two interact? You both have argued in different ways, yes. Growth, getting inequality down helps with you getting your growth up. Secondly, do we want this growth at all? Or are we degrowthers? Thirdly, pre-distribution versus redistribution. They're intention, they're not complements, as we're arguing. And then lastly, none of this is going to happen. Everyone can go home and kind of enjoy Suffolk or whatever else you happen to come from. All right? Does that give everyone enough warning of where we are heading? Right, let's do the interaction first. So Andrea Salvatore has asked us a good question in here. The, um, you should all declare uh, friendships and others. The, um, great work as always. There you go, Mike. Andrea still likes you. Um, uh, is this, so is, in this modelling, growth is exogenous. It, we're just saying what happens if it turns up, right? The, um, mainly we're doing that to make Martin's point, which is we really do need some productivity growth. It's the main reason why wages and people's incomes haven't grown for the last 15 years. What is Britain's relative decline actually driven by? A lack of productivity growth. The, um, that's the main thing. Not anything else. Not inequality's gone up. It's just lack of productivity growth plus some terms of trade problems. But we don't want to go into that here. Um, but kind of go the other way. So, Mike, what's we don't model an interaction between the two here. Partly for substance reasons and partly for have you tried modelling that reasons. Um, but what do you think, Mike? Um, yeah, we, we did just sort of drop growth, drop growth on, on, the, on the income distribution and, and, and see what happened. And, and, we, and that growth stayed, was, was sort of constant, even when we did the pre-distribution and redistribution. So um, I think that there are arguments in both directions, in both directions. Martin has reminded us that a pre-distribution agenda could be pro-productivity, um, and you know, there, are, there are lots of reasons to think that that might be the case. Um, you, you, might also, you might also say, criticising myself, that the experience of the last decade was that we got more people in work because they felt really poor, and so they wanted, you know, they kind of had to work more. And so it might be that our, that our um, a, a pre-distribution agenda might make, might make increasing employment kind of harder. Uh, um, um, I'm not. I'm not too worried about work incentives. Work incentives is the other thing people tend to sort of throw at us when, when you advocate increasing benefits faster than prices. Um, I mean, my, my take is that in a kind of steady-state world where earnings are growing, where the minimum wage is growing at least in line with earnings, then if you're also putting up the benefit system in line with earnings, you're just preserving the steady state. You're not. You're not worsening work in financial work incentives in, in any in any way, any whatsoever. So I'm not not too worried about that. 
Um, but definitely there are all sorts of there are all sorts of links between the policies we thought about and growth which we could explore more. So let's let's so you both broadly come on to the the interaction exists and could be positive feedback loops. So let's just do there's one thing that is the biggest challenge to that argument. It's on the substance and then I'll explain why we didn't do it. But on the substance the biggest challenge is the United States. Okay. Which keeps being incredibly unequal. Uh, Alex Madman has a completely dysfunctional politics um, and yet keeps seeing much stronger productivity growth than Europe over the last... If you'd said to me, like, when Trump turns up, would we see the US seeing much better productivity growth over the coming six years than Europe? I'd have been like, no, it's suboptimal to have a would-be fascist as your... Uh, president, if, like, there's lots of other things that are totally dysfunctional about the country, um, yet its economy keeps delivering higher productivity growth not than every European country at every point in time. Germany's had some good phases. Scandinavia's got a good level. But it's hard to say the European model is driving, which I think people, like, if we go back to the book that everyone focuses on um, here, which is now escaping my mind. What was the book at the 2010s? Oh, my God. Capital in the 21st century. No, 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 no. That's not the one you're thinking of. Share the link between the two, between productivity and... Oh, come on, you've all read it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember in a second. Anyway, there was a book, right? Uh, and the book basically just shows you a load of charts showing things linking lower inequality to higher growth. Yeah? Spirit level. The spirit level, thank you. It's lucky you're here. It's almost like we're professionals at this. Um, the spirit level basically said, look, here's loads of charts. Get yourself, get your inequality down, you'll get faster growth, basically, right? They, um, and it led a trend and the IMF started saying, oh, look, maybe this, there's something in this. And then the OECD said a bit of it because institutions are basically herd animals with no imagination whatsoever. So everyone goes at once and then starts saying the same thing for 10 years and they go the other way. Uh, the US is just a really big counterexample to like the certainty that lower inequality, right? Because the US is incredibly unequal. It's unequal in every sense you can possibly imagine. Income inequality, wealth inequality, life expectancy inequality through the roof. Like the, um, so I think it's hard to say it's like a total truism now. Within, on the margins, there's definitely places where being more equal helps you on growth. We've listed two of those examples now, which I both agree with. So the, so the reason we are, we basically, it's not that we're saying there's definitely not a relationship. It's we're making, we're trying to write a report on what can policymakers be confident they will happen and they need to do. And our view is they need to do all three. Within that, then obviously we think you should target ways of doing pre-distribution and redistribution that do support productivity growth. But we don't want to claim like certainty and total confidence that they definitely lead to each other. So it's not they don't, and individual bits definitely do, but we don't want to argue definitely just being more equal means definitely higher productivity. In general. And the other way, I'll give you another way. Britain's productivity growth being slow recently, I don't think it's principally because inequality is higher. It's a contributing factor, lower investment levels, which is our, one of the underlying drivers of Britain's weak productivity growth. Definitely in the lab, having a, a ready supply of cheap labour definitely contributes. But go on. Yeah, I just want to make two very quick points. One is, you know, does one lead to the other? Does the second lead to the first? Yeah. Or is a choice of economic model something that produces both or neither, right? Yes, exactly. So I think a, a fair story about the UK is that it's opted for a labour market and generally economic model yep. that both leads to low productivity growth and to higher inequality because it encourages the use of cheap low productivity labor yep. uh, more than many other countries. That's point one. Point two on the US, productivity growth in the US has been falling over the period where its inequality has been rising. I mean, it was uh, the last 40 years you've had a huge rise in inequality in the US and a big fall 
yeah. in productivity. It's still productivity growth is true. It's higher than most other rich countries. Yeah. Uh, but the mechanism, you know, the direction of travel has been the same in that sense. I don't think it's a counterexample to to the view that more inequality, at least beyond some point, is bad for productivity growth, or the more nuanced version that yeah. there is there's been an, a move to an economic model that produces both. Um, but you know, the US is different in that it's a much, much, much bigger single market essentially. Yeah. Um, so there are productivity gains to be had for okay. any innovation that you you know you invent yeah. the internet, it's much easier to spread it through 300 million people, you get the scale economies in the yep. US in the way that you don't do even in EU countries. Yep. Let's not start on Brexit again. Right, Tanya. Well, just to observe that I don't think uh, many of us would think that the US was a good model to follow. So it, you well, may, not for life expectancy, no. Well, <laughs> not for any aspect of quality of life or what we think that we want productivity growth for. So. Yes, yeah, although we should be a bit careful. I mean, the typical American is now 60% richer than the typical Brit. The gap in living standards has gone up a lot in the last 15 years. And that is translating into actual consumption for even poor. I mean, the way we used to say, like, all poor Americans are still are poorer than poor Brits, even though our GDP per capita is lower, yep. is now only true for, like, the bottom 15% or so. Like, that's a lot of people. Uh, that's so a lot of people, but, but there's a lot of people having a lot of consumption in the US that is not happening here. And I think if we look at kind of what we think quality of life is about, so I mean this partly perhaps relates to one of your other controversies yeah. here, which is about, you know, do we actually want growth altogether? And I think my position would be that we don't want any kind of growth. There are very specific mm -hmm. forms of growth that we want, and they're uh, the forms of growth that are compatible with uh, the climate. Uh, that That's, of course, a very important part of the Economy 2030 inquiry more broadly, uh, but also consistent with living, flourishing lives, including the people at the bottom. Uh, so not all types of productivity growth are equal, I would say. Um, and the, the model that the US has pursued, it seems to me, uh, drives down quality of life um, for significant sections of the population, whatever's happening to their incomes. Yeah, we definitely don't, we definitely don't want to be America in that sense, no, Liam, but we just like some of the productivity, just a little bit. Very good. Okay, Liam, let's do um, growth versus degrowth. Okay, and, let's, and let's do it because, again, it gets slightly kind of in like street politics, this thing becomes like a rather simplistic headline. But let's break it down into the different bits. So decoupling, like it doesn't feed through to ordinary wages. So there's no point having the productivity growth. Then there's a, even if it's decoupling, there's a version of what Mike's showing you, which is that the rich benefit more. And so we don't want it because we're prioritising the inequality. And then there's your point, which is it's not lots of it at least aren't sustainable from a climate perspective or even if they are from a net zero perspective they're not sustainable from a green and pleasant land perspective like a general degrading of the environment argument basically back to Suffolk they are, right okay so let's do those in turn so on decoupling so um, a while back you wrote a lot about the kind of and this is again a US basically a US driven phenomena which is look at productivity growth in the US look at it since 1980 look how much stronger productivity growth was than wage growth for typical workers in the US. I'll come back in a second. Uh, therefore, it's, the relationship has broken down with what people concluded from those charts. The charts showed this happening, productivity up, wages flat, going on for 15, 20 years. Um, people concluded th th there is no relationship anymore between the two, therefore 
don't be policymakers shouldn't be confident if they get productivity growth, it will raise wages. Was basically the uh, again the IMF and the OECD jumped on the bandwagon about ten years after everybody else had read the papers. The um, I think the balance has now swung back to people saying they can decouple. They definitely did in the US. But, and why did they in the US? Because inequality went up a lot in that phase, basically. That's the main reason. Other stuff complicated, blah, blah, blah. But basically, inequality went up. Right? The, um, some people, but our judgment is on the balance, policymakers should behave in a way that assumes a marginal increase in productivity will feed through to a marginal increase in wages. Have you changed your mind at all? Well, I would I, I would go a bit further than what you just said and, and say, you know, if we're talking about policymakers, they should see that if this is happening, it's a result of policy. You know, it's not yeah, a sort, of, that's really it's good not a sort of economic law of nature. Yeah. There aren't that many economic laws of nature. Uh, it was always a, just a US phenomenon in my reading. It never really, when, when you looked at it in Europe, it didn't happen in Europe. Uh, I mean, or, or for much shorter periods of or time. For short, or, you know, it was very, very marginal. And again, you can relate it to, to policies. Uh, so, you know, don't let it happen. But <laughs> even in the US, it's changed, right? Yeah, more recently. The last two, yeah, last totally. two years, there's been very strong wage growth at the bottom, mm -hmm. largely as a result of very active macroeconomic policy, which now everybody is freaking out about and saying it was too much and so on. Well, I actually think those big fiscal expenditures and, and transfers uh, back in 2020 and 2021 were huge successes. Uh, you had both very high wage growth, even after inflation, at the bottom, you had a very high rate of job-to-job -job moves among the lowest paid, which we know leads to higher wages because people, <laughs> they can, you know, they can say, I won't take this job because there's a better one paid around the corner. Uh, probably we should see that it leads to productivity growth. It hasn't yet, but it's, it'd be surprising if it didn't. Very good. Now, Mike, why don't you, John Bryant has a question here for you, which is basically the, the inequality anti-version, the anti-growth mm. argument, which is basically, it means, I mean, let's this, this just focus on the first clause here. GDP growth, let's, uh, let's assume we're mean GDP per capita or productivity growth, because GDP growth could mean lots of other things, uh, means nothing to those on the minimum wage. The, um, so. Well, I mean, that, that, that really is a policy issue there, isn't it? It's entirely up to governments what, what, we, what, what they do to, to the minimum wage. Um, um, Although, how do, we, how do we set the minimum wage? What? At the moment, we are setting the minimum wage, so it's an ever-increasing fraction of average earnings. Fraction so it's of going, earnings. Going, yeah, yes, sorry. At the moment, the government is targeting a certain percentage of, um, of average earnings and indeed is pushing it up and up the earnings distribution. So, and, and, and that's, the, that's the main reason why we've seen such falls in earnings inequality in the UK and such a large fall in the fraction of people who are low paid. Now, we assume that any, any sensible government will, will want to continue that, um, and that, will be, that would be a core part of, the, um, of, of a pre-distribution agenda. So no, I, I, think, I think I dispute, dispute John, well, I mean, Martin's, Martin's point is very important that policy is very much um, to, 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 at the heart of the link between GDP growth and the minimum wage in particular, and the UK has a, has a, a strong record and, and consensus here that that minimum wage should be linked to average earnings. So just so everyone understand that that means if you had productivity growth and higher average wage growth, you would have a higher minimum wage than you would otherwise have, even for the given government policy of setting the minimum wage as an X, X percent of average of typical earnings. Right? Everyone clear? Ish. It's linked to the median at the moment. Though. Typical, yeah. Typical earnings, yeah. Medium yeah. earnings, yeah. Now the second bit is basically what this exercise is trying to do. The second bit, surely a measure of real income increases for most people, take out the top ten percent, would be. Like, uh, is what you're actually aiming for. That is basically what we're saying. 
what you're aiming for is to make sure that what's a plausible route to incomes growing for like everybody in the bottom 90% or so. Although our modelling shows that as long as you've got wage growth, the top will be growing somewhat anyway. Tanya, what do you think? And if we should do climate, can we have growth without carbon? Uh, so, I mean, I refer to other strands of the Economy 2030 work who've really looked at this in a lot more detail. Um, I don't take a view on whether it's possible or not, but those who've looked into it a lot more uh, uh, as part of the inquiry uh, have, a, have a strategy. Um, so I'd encourage people to go and go and have a look at that. But it is, I mean, it is clearly the, the sine qua non. It's, 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 we can't proceed without uh, taking that as, as absolutely foundational. And, you know, th that has to be central to un our understanding, just as we are saying, well, it's not growth, it's productivity growth. But likewise, it's not just any old productivity growth, it's productivity growth that's consistent with the planetary boundaries. Uh, so, I mean, I sort of think that's taken as red, really should be taken as red. Yeah. Perhaps it isn't, but it should be taken as red. Absolutely. Um, I mean, every, not every, almost every advanced economy we would compare ourselves to has more or less now decoupled their productivity growth from carbon consumption, definitely from production. The US will consumption too. They, they, but they basically to now, together, but yeah. basically now consumption. So go and explain that to everyone. More, more, more or less. Yeah. Uh, it's true that in most advanced countries now can see economic growth, GDP growth, while seeing absolute emissions go down. Uh, that's been true for most of them. More or less is important. You know, some have reduced their emissions very little, but it's still down, even while GDP is up. And you know, 1990 is kind of what we compare us to, com compare these numbers to. GDP has gone up by 40, 50, 60 percent. Uh, in almost all rich country cases, total emissions have gone down, maybe just a little. In the UK's case, quite a lot. Yep. Um, the the challenge is to make the same happen in in emerging economies. That is that's a bigger challenge. Yep. But for the UK, I think it's hot. Like, remember, people say growth and they think lots more consumption of physical stuff, where actually productivity growth is about us in lots of cases just producing either the same or more with or with with less, but by using less inputs. Right. So in lots of ways, productivity growth is about how we keep producing lots without. Um, using up more of the planet, including, and carbon's one example of that, where the UK definitely decoupled its carbon. Because if you look if you look at the 20th century, all of it, the line between GDP growth and like energy usage, which was basically carbon consumption, is basically a straight line. You could have measured GDP or you could have measured energy usage, but that just it hasn't been the case now for quite a few decades. I think that's important to remember. That's, so that's our case for optimism on why you don't all need to be degrowthers. The um, uh, um, Suffolk should sort itself out. Right. on. Um, pre-distribution versus redistribution. So there's the hard version of this argument, which is like, stop doing redistribution, just worry about pre-distribution. And then there's a v more kind of sensible version of the argument, which is there's a trade-off, which we've touched on a bit. Some people might say um, uh, work incentives is an area where the trade-off happens. If you help on redistribution, you'll get less pre-distribution because fewer people will work. Um, there's a trade-off on like policy energy. So some people would say, Okay, well, look, the Labour government in the 2000s did lots of redistribution and all the marginal effort should be on pre-distribution. So even if you think both are part of the strategy, you might think we should only do one now. Right. Those are the two. That's the more that's like being nicer to the argument rather than the like George Osborne version, which is I'm doing pre-distribution because I don't like redistribution broadly. The, um, do you think, Tanya, what do, do you think on public opinion on this? So the public is like definitely susceptible to the don't worry about redistribution, just do pre-distribution argument. The, um, 
Why is that? So part of it is, I think, about these sort of tropes of um, it being about the unemployed, which, as Mike brings out very clearly in the paper, is there absolutely not. There, there are not very many uh, people who are outright unemployed in the traditional sense. Um, uh, so, so part of it, I think, is is that the sort of framing. Part of it, I think, is uh, again this this static view that it is those people over there uh, and not as I said, ourselves at a different point in our life cycle where we're drawing more on social security. Um, uh, so I think reframing um, can, can help to some extent uh, with those. Uh, I think the, the points that um, Martin drew out as well about uh, the taper, uh, so the withdrawal of, of benefits as people move into work um, and our increasing reliance over time on means-tested benefits of different kinds, or income contingent as some people prefer to call them, uh, is potentially problematic. It does create these, these traps, these barriers. Um, and an alternative kind of way to engineer the effectively the same result, particularly in the light of where the uh, risks actually come from in our economy as we have it now, is to think more about benefits contingent on people's status of different kinds. So for example, being a child, uh, rather than uh, the overall household income as being the, the entitlement for the, for the benefit, or for that matter, um, having additional needs through ill health or disability, which is an increasingly important part of the overall picture and, and reason why people need more, more uh, input. Again, there, I think it's, it's a mistake to see it as a stark choice between redistribution and pre-distribution. So if we think about uh, people with long-term health and uh, disability, for example, there's a great deal that we can do to reshape employment in a way that enables more of those people to be in employment. So it isn't simply about saying, ah, oh, well, OK, you've got a disability, therefore you're going to be out of work, therefore you need redistribution. Uh, we have, at periods in the past, put a lot more effort into, for example, uh, supporting employers and employees to retain uh, their work when they develop a long-term health condition or disability. The vast majority of people who claim uh, long-term disability benefits were in work at the time that their disability became apparent. So retaining that relationship um, is, is potentially a key part of, of the pre-distribution part of, of that agenda. Similarly, in terms of anti-discrimination legislation and enforcement thereof, uh, thinking about uh, new forms of, of working and how they can actually be more flexible um, to support people uh, continuing in work who have uh, long-term health conditions, including mental health problems. All of these things um, mean that, that it really isn't just a choice between pre-distribution and redistribution, but that kind of creative, intelligent policies in this area can, can make the two work together. Mike, what's the, what's the version, what's the strongest version of the pre-distribution versus redistribution? What's the, what's the element? So in aggregate, we don't agree with it, mm. but that's not, that, it's good to be like self-critical. So what's the area of it where you like most think, okay, we should worry about that interaction? Oh, I see, I was, I was, I was, um, I mean, I think, I think it will be the, the work incentives um, and, and, and Martin's touched on the taper as well. But you know, as, I, as, as I say, the, the, my defence would be that linking everything to earnings is basically preserving, mm. preserving where we are now. It's not, it's not making any, any financial work incentives um, worse. Um, 
So that's, but that's, that's, a, that's a anxiety if you went like hell for leather on the redistribution strategy, made yeah, no that, progress on redistribution. Yeah. Yes, at some point there has to be there are, there are trade-offs. Yes, if you went if you if you went hell bent on redistribution, you will be ma- you would be making the redistribution um, harder. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But like I say, let, let, let's not also forget the cost savings. So the the, the yes. virtuous circle, of course, is that is that redistribution makes your redistribution cheaper. Yes. Mm-hmm. And some countries that have generous welfare states but don't spend more as a share of GDP, generous at the level of the individual, right? Mm. But don't spend more than us as a share of GDP. It's because their pre-distribution strategy is giving them lower employment rate, lower unemployment rates, higher employment rates, um, benefit other networks of support, basically. So you, you, it, there, are, there are like model choices as well as the individual policies. Martin, on this, then I want to move us on to the individual elements. Yeah, I mean, phrasing the question as, you know, does, does redistribution harm or help uh, pre-distribution. Well, it depends on the redistribution, right? Uh, so obviously, if you're paying people to stay out of work, it's pretty bad for redistribution. Uh, but you could, go, uh, you could go hard in on redistribution in ways that would uh, help pre-distribution. I mean, this is why I talked about the taper. This is why I'm a long-time supporter of negative income tax, also known as universal basic oh, income. I knew this was right? coming. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying it and parking it. Okay. But let me mention a couple of other examples. Okay. If you help students, that's good for pre-distribution because it will probably make get them better, better jobs. Human capital. Really. Human capital. If you uh, redistribute uh, in a way that targets childcare help, that's redistribution. Yeah. That's very good for both employment and productivity by making it easier for women to yep. keep a career. And, and to work. So those are those are not trade-offs, those are trade-ins, if you like. Yep. So you can trade trade redistribution in for pre-distribution. Okay. That's the Tony Blair argument. We can have it all. He definitely doesn't like the UBI bit. But other than that. Right, okay, good. Let's um let's do um why it might be hard on pre-distribution and redistribution separately, because it's good to like stress test. Okay, and then the, and we'll wrap into that the nihilist, nothing can happen. It's all impossible. Politics, have you met it? Not, like, you know, nothing's going to make, make any progress. Let's all go home and cry. So pre-distribution, let's first of all say, Mike, let's do employment. So the, the strong version of scepticism would be on employment would be, um, you've had it. Right. Britain had record employment before the pandemic. We're a bit short of that now, about 0.4, 0.5% of labour force. But broadly, we're at what is historically very high employment levels. Uh, the argument would run, um, uh, you're getting a sicker population, you're getting an older population, you ain't getting another empl- you're not getting a further employment rise. Or it would run, um, you don't want a higher employment rise because everyone's quite stressed because everyone's working nowadays, it's all very difficult. Um, have you met like the childcare system and all the rest? Um, uh, and it only happened because people got poorer or at least didn't get richer during that phase. And so they compensated for low wage growth by going out and working more. I think it's definitely something in that. And immigration. Uh, plus post immigration. And so it's, it's neither, it's implausible you will get another significant rise in employment, is what some people would say. So that's unemployment, Mike. And on earnings, people would, the, so the model, what's in this model that we showed you is doing the minimum wage and that continuing to what it, do what it's done over the last few um, decades, which is faster hourly employment wage, hourly wage growth at the bottom than the middle and the top. The chart does this. It's basically like higher at the bottom, twice as high actually, and then the middle and the top is basically broadly flat over two decades. This though is what's in the model goes further than that and says on weekly pay, which is what matters for living standards, we get faster growth at the bottom and the middle than the top. So it's that shape, right? The, um, so it, you, it, the minimum wage on its own won't deliver that. 
that, that wage. You've got to do other stuff. And Britain doesn't like fiddling with its labour market very much because we're scared that if we tweak anything, suddenly unemployment will shoot up. The, um, so, Mike, we're not going to get employment growth because we've had it. And we're not going to get as progressive earnings growth because we'll just do the minimum wage again. And that won't make enough difference. Well, the, the employment one is, is challenging, yes. I don't, think, I don't think it'll be easy to get another three percentage point rise in employment, and it would take uh, a sustained action by, by, by government and employers. And we, we, as, as we know, it, as we said before, governments wanting to do this should be focusing on older workers, should be focusing on um, childcare and parents, and should be focusing on those with, with health issues, particularly mental health, and that's both, both young people mental health issues um, and older people with physical and mental health issues. But with... Um, with a focus on those three on those three groups um, and, 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 and realism about what you can achieve, then I think higher, you know, higher employment could well happen. Yeah. And everyone said it was impossible in 2010. If you said in yeah. 2010 anyone said we'll get 3% growth in employment rates, they'd have all said it was impossible. Then, and then it just happened year after year. People kept writing papers being like, we're done now. The increase is done. And then next year, another 0.5% growth in the labour force happened. The um, uh, redistribution. Can, oh, can I just come in on you that? Do you want ten years of free world? <laughs> Thanks. So just, just to follow up, I mean, another group that we haven't talked about very much here is is carers. Yeah. Um, so people who are uh, supporting. There's actually other a great question with, on that. We uh, make sure we sort of just get. Sure. Yeah. I won't squeeze them in otherwise. The question, but like, what basically? What about counting care and voluntary non-paid workers' productive activities? Now, there's the there's the how it counts in the numbers. Yes. But then there's like, where does it fit into the economic strategy? Is really the what matters. Absolutely. Um, and, and it seems to me that, that in terms of thinking about um, employment growth in the future, one of the things that we need to also look at is people who are going to be exiting the labour market unless we do something about it. So the kind of counterfactual is not steady state, unfortunately. And carers seem to me to be one very high risk uh, area for us, given the parlour state of social care paid. Uh, caring yep. work. So um, that needs to be looked at, in my view, in an integrated way. So how are we supporting unpaid carers? How are we uh, making the paid care sector function more effectively so that the unpaid carers are not leaving the, the workforce in, in droves, uh, that that work is valued both uh, as, a, as paid employment and as, as unpaid activity. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot more. I mean, and carer strategy has been promised for uh, the best part of a decade and, and not, not been delivered, not even been written. So um, there's, a, there's a lot that I think could, could be done there and that's an important area to, to keep an eye on. Great. Let, so let's do redistribution, the case against what we're calling for. So well, this is only really fairly fair for Mike to take, and then we can go to a broader one, um, Martin. So Mike, basically... Uh, you, you do address this in the paper, but we should just explain. So people are saying, OK, but if we'd done earnings rather than inflation this year, that would have been really bad for poor households, which is true. Like a Conservative government has delivered a 10% uprating to benefits from in April. That's a very big deal. You definitely wouldn't have wanted them to go up in line with earnings. So... Yes, we are pro the, the, the technical term is something called a smoothed earnings link, where in normal years you would want to increase benefits in line with earnings because they're normally going up faster than inflation. If you get uh, the, the strange times when earnings are falling in real terms, then, then, then you would link to prices for a bit. But when that was over and earnings were back again, increasing more than inflation, you would sort of increase benefits a bit more slowly until they sort of 
fell back again, so they were still rising in line with earnings over the long run. This is basically what they, they're now trying to do in, in, in New Zealand. I, I didn't say that in my talk. New Zealand switched a few, before the pandemic hit, New Zealand switched a few years ago to doing earnings up rating. And then they had the, oh my gosh, actually now earnings have collapsed. What on earth is going on? What could we do? So they've done inflation temporarily with the idea they will go back to that long run path of earnings you know, in more normal times. But the key is not to have the ratchet effect, which is behind the triple lock. Right, good. Are there other countries we should touch on? Because everyone says, oh, this is completely impossible. We've done prices forever. We're going to keep doing prices. What other countries do earnings-related rises? In um, Germany, Belgium and the Netherlands all have uprating rules which factor in but GDP growth or earnings growth or minimum wage growth when they're thinking about the level of social assistance type benefits. One thing that's just generally true, having spent like the last nearly two years on this wider economic strategy for the country project, is 